You're listening to Asbury University's Chapel Podcast, recorded live from our campus in Wilmore, Kentucky. Asbury's Chapel Service hosts speakers from around the world to inspire academic excellence and spiritual vitality. We hope you enjoy today's message. Thank you all. It was awesome. Good morning. Hey, I want to welcome any guests who are here. Thank you for coming. You are always welcome at Asbury University. We're thrilled that you're here. And y'all, I just want to open with a few context comments. I, I totally get that February or February, February. It feels like February. It's October. It's the middle of the semester. It's a little gloomier out. It's colder. It's one of those days, pot of coffee, sweatpants. You're going to be done later this week. You have a break. So I just, I just want to name that and just ask if, if you could lean in to this. I would really appreciate it. I hope that you all have some opportunity at some point to get to know our provost, Dr. Sherry Powers. She's amazing. And among other things, she would tell you that we don't want chapel to be a place that's just your heart and the classroom is a place that's just your head. We believe that your heartstrings can be pulled in the classroom and we believe that you can think in chapel. And so I'm gonna invite you into that this morning. So earlier this year, recently a book came out, it's called The Great Dechurching: Who's Leaving, Why They Are Going, and What Will It Take to Bring Them Back? And there's this staggering figure in this book that 40 million people have stopped going to church over the last 25 years in the United States. And the phenomenon of de-churching parallels the phenomenon of many people deconstructing their faith. Also in recent years, we've seen a lot of high-profile Christian figures very publicly deconstruct or abandon their faith. And they'll cite things like philosophical or intellectual reasons, questions that they think cannot be sufficiently answered within the Christian tradition, biblical norms that seem out of sync with modern sensibilities, or just a kind of general disillusionment. And importantly, here's what I want you to know about that. That saddens me. That breaks my heart. I, when I speak of those groups, I, I don't say that wagging a finger to anyone who's very publicly or very privately left church or left the faith. But this phenomenon of de-churching and deconstructing does raise some questions for me. So in John chapter six, at the very end of that book, there's just fascinating story and you can read it for yourselves, but basically Jesus is offering some really difficult teaching and it's, it's a hard teaching to accept. And some of the, the followers at the end of that, they leave, they abandon him. And remember, Jesus turns to the 12 disciples and says, do you want to leave too? And remember, Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We've come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Now, a few things about this passage. Number one, it's interesting that Jesus seconds our motion. He seconds our motion. He does not force anyone to follow him. He invites, he doesn't force. But second, and this is what I wanna focus on today, there is no neutral ground. For years, I've been writing down questions that I would have to answer if I abandoned Christianity or the life of faith. And it's not that these questions don't have answers or attempted answers. The issue is this, are those answers sufficient? Are you willing to stake your life on those answers? And to be clear, I'm, I'm not leaving Christianity, certainly. I write these questions down as a reminder 
that even if any of us were to leave the faith, hard questions and challenges will not go away. So whether a person is a Christ follower or not, I think there's something particularly tragic about the unexamined life and living answers to questions that we've never asked before. So this morning, I wanna do something different, unique. I'm just simply going to read some of those questions I've been writing down for years to you. Again, these are questions I have been collecting over a long period of time that would need to be answered if someone were to walk away from following Christ. And these are questions under the category of existence and meaning and morality and identity and finally destiny. So that's what I'm gonna do this morning and then I'll have a few wrap up comments. So let me start under existence. Why is there something instead of nothing? This is Martin Heidegger's fundamental question of metaphysics. How do we explain the infinitesimally small probability of the conditions of life emerging from materialist processes, the probability that life will emerge from those conditions, and the probability that consciousness will emerge from that life? Put differently, if someone were to text you Homer's Odyssey, word for word, line for line, page for page, and told you that it was just simply a random assortment of letters that, by chance alone, happen to perfectly resemble Homer's classic tome, would you believe them? Beyond probability, how does raw material for existence emerge from nothing? How does something or anything originate ex nihilo? Or did Parmenides and Lucretius have it right that nothing comes from nothing? Questions of meaning. In his opening of his famous essay, The Myth of Sisyphus, philosopher Albert Camus raises the question as to whether we should commence suicide at the end of our existence. The world is inherently meaningless, he says, so the question is valid. In my generation, this was Kurt Cobain's question. If life is meaningless and fundamentally painful, why live? Camus ends his essay comparing the human lot to something like Sisyphus rolling a rock up a hill only to have it roll back down again for eternity. Meaningless. As meaningless and pointless as rolling a rock up and down a hill for a lifetime. But, he says, we must imagine Sisyphus happy. That is, he artificially manufactures meaning in a meaningless world, the philosophy of absurdity. And I ask, really? Must we imagine Sisyphus happy? What in our experience would ever lead us to conclude that? Another question, Democritus claims that nothing exists but atoms in empty space. Many have come to accept an atomic view of the world, but are individual atoms sentient? And if individual atoms are not sentient, how did human beings who are supposedly a collection of atoms come to have sensation? Is life a tale told by an idiot signifying nothing, as Shakespeare's Macbeth suggests? Richard Dawkins says, yes. At a sort of cosmic level, it is. Or as Nathaniel Hawthorne puts it, a frantic steeplechase towards nothing. Are we accidental collocations of atoms, as Bertrand Russell writes? Or, as my friend Thane Yuri says, germs that got lucky. And if so, are we prepared to agree with Russell that only within the scaffolding of these truths, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair, can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built? 
Morality, Roman playwright Terence said, nothing human is alien to me. In other words, if something is a part of the human experience, it's not abnormal. It sounds like Paul saying, food for the stomach and stomach for the food, a statement that he is repeating in Corinth. The expression suggesting that all appetites are equal. But echoing Paul, are all things beneficial? Are all appetites equal? And what about normal and abnormal? What actually makes something normal? Is it normality, phenomenon that occur with central tendency? Because under that definition, slavery was normal, corporate greed is normal, sex trafficking is normal. Or is it normativity, the way things should be? The normal should be grounded in something, but what? What is the standard to judge what is normative? Is that standard fixed? Is it culturally contingent? But we don't like grounding ideas and beliefs and values, we like preferences. Schumpeter said to realize the relative validity of one's convictions and yet to stand for them unflinchingly is what separates a civilized man from a barbarian. Does it? Is that what a civilized person is? Echoing Michael Sandel, if I truly believe that my deepest held beliefs and values are only relatively valid, but I still stand for them unflinchingly, should I be characterized as civilized? Or, as he says, does that make me a fool? Edna St. Vincent Millay says that beauty is whatever gives joy. Is she correct? Is beauty inside of us? Is the beautiful just a projection of what ruminates in me? Or can something be beautiful independent of my judgment? To use a Samuel Taylor Coleridge example, if I say a waterfall is sublime, am I saying something about my feelings or am I saying something about the waterfall? Or is it all just personal taste? Is all valuation simply projection of our subjective reactions onto a neutral world, one of the ways of defining moral phenomenology? Or is there a thing outside of us called beauty that we respond to, that which we apprehend, that which demands our ordinate affections? Does essence precede existence? Does existence precede essence? Would you be willing to commodify all goods and services that are not illegal? For example, should we have commercial markets in sex, body parts, surrogacy, or even voting, as the scholars Jason Brennan and Peter Jaworski have argued, because the meaning of these goods are culturally contingent and not written into the moral fabric of the universe. In other words, nothing can be desacralized because nothing is sacred. And if morality is internally generated, unique to each person, and not corresponding to a moral reality, what obligations do we have to future generations? Why? How can we claim any obligation to the future? Premised on what? Speaking of morality, if the non-divine evolutionary story is true, that a purposeless process of random genetic mutations in a competitive environment where mutations best adapted to that environment persist, can we say that violence is bad? How can we condemn a world red in tooth and claw? If materialism is true, and ultimate reality is defined as being inherently non-rational, non-purposeful, and non-moral, how do we explain moral experience? How do we get moral obligation from this? Our religious sensibilities, quote, an accidental byproduct, a misfiring of something useful in a world drained of spiritual significance, as Richard Dawkins has suggested. And importantly, are we prepared to accept the implications of that assumption. As Nietzsche expressed in his famous essay, The Madman, can humanity dispense with faith in God and still retain the moral residue that adheres to the Christian faith? Are we not plunging continually, says Nietzsche, backward, sideward, forward, in all directions? Is there 
still any up or down? Are we not straying as through an infinite nothing? Do we not feel the breath of empty space? Has it not become colder? Is not night continually closing in on us? In other words, says Nietzsche, are we prepared for a world where God is dead? Can Judeo-Christian assumptions about creation in Imago Dei be abandoned while still retaining the character of Christian goodness in inestimable human value? As Ronald Osborne argues at the Veritas Forum, the question, can we be good without God, does not strike nearly deep enough. The urgent question is, will we still be good to the stranger in our midst, or good in some ways once we fully grasp the contestable character of humanism and once we have utterly abandoned the essentially religious idea that every person is made in the enigmatic language of Scripture in the image of God. This is why the British author and atheist Roy Hattersley asked, why is there a notable absence of rationalist societies, free thinkers clubs, and atheist associations from charitable work or disaster relief? Does reality depend upon its capacity to be verified? The question by philosopher Giovanni Vattimo. That is, is something only real because it can be apprehended through the senses, through empiricism? If so, what do we make of metaphysical phenomenon like love or beauty or evil? Are we prepared to say that those don't exist? In other words, how do we make sense of a religious cynic like Bill Maher saying that religion is evil while simultaneously dispensing with metaphysical categories like evil? Was eugenics, was the eugenics project morally objectionable because it grotesquely violated an irreducible, non-transferable dignity of persons? Or was it objectionable because it violated gene pool variability, the engine of natural selection, the argument made by Lulu Miller? That is, eugenics is bad or objectionable merely because it breeds out variation and weakens the gene pool. Identity. This brings us to personhood at what it means to be a self. How does one become a self? Is a self my interior faculties, or is it my body, or both? If it's the latter, why? Is identity constituted by what doesn't change within me? What is that? Does a person have an essence? What's that? Are post-structural theorists correct that a self is not something that exists before I act? Do my actions make me who I am? Do I create my essence? Can I, in that sense, be anything? Why not? Did thinkers like Herbert Marcuse or other Frankfurt School scholars correctly capture personhood? That myself is merely an amalgam of my mind, my will, my desires, and my emotions. That my source of self originates from within me. I am an unencumbered and unembedded tabula rasa. Or is philosopher Daniel Dennett correct? That there is no self. And in the place of some locatable entity called the self is a center of narrative gravity. We are just a mass of matter that makes up stories about our experiences. And what about rights? Where do rights come from? Do they come from rationality? The argument from John Rawls and Kant or social contract theory, Locke and Rousseau. Should all rights be equal for all citizens? Why? If someone breaks the social contract, do they deserve the protection of the social contract? If they do, why? Do we advance rights because it's the best long-term structure of a society? John Stuart Mill's argument. Or because, as economists argue, rule of law and property rights best lubricate the pathway for growth, innovation, or GDP per capita? Or did Marx have it correct? Rights are necessary for us not to kill each other, that a rights-based society is inherently a conflict society. Or do we extol rights and dignity simply because a group of men codified social rights by signing documents in 17 
1776 and 1789. If we claim that political power is a function of majority will and all persons have inalienable rights, then how can those rights be secured against the will of the majority? Is freedom merely the expansion of choice? If freedom, as it's understood in its modern sense, is being unencumbered from tradition and community and associated obligations, how do we reconcile the enduring human need for liberty and belonging? Are these two human needs at odds? If so, won't our relational commitments or lack thereof always leave us wanting? Does love wither under constraint? as Percy Shelley argued. That is, love should never attach itself to anything in order to be love. Is love sentimental kindness? Is it the unqualified approval of someone's idiosyncratic preferences? Would you enter a lifelong contract of relational fidelity based upon that definition of love? If love is stripped of demand, obligation, and responsibility, is it still love? Is love merely desiring someone for your good, or is it desiring something good for someone? What Joseph Pieper asks. Last, destiny. What's our destiny? Epicurus said, when we exist, death is not. When death exists, we are not. Similarly, author and atheist Julian Barnes said that when the end of consciousness comes, there is nothing, really nothing, to be frightened of because the expiration of consciousness and existence is nothing. Sounds straightforward. But, asked Dallas Willard, what if you can never stop existing? Now, he says, you've got Hamlet's problem. For in that sleep of death, what dreams may come when we have shuffled off this mortal coil must give us pause. Jesus, do you want to leave? Peter, where would we go? I end with this. In the de-churching book, there were two dominant categories for those leaving the church. One of those groups can be described as casualty exits. Casualty exits. These are exits because of church hurt. People who have said, if this is truly Christianity, I want to run as far and as fast away as I can. People have become cynical and bitter or negative because of moral failures of respected church leaders. People who are sick of hypocrisy. People who have been handed malformed or deformed expressions of the faith. People whose salt has lost its saltiness. And in response to this, I say, God forgive us. God forgive us. Sometimes there's nothing more to say. God forgive us. There was a second category. The first, the casualty exits, but the second category of people leaving the church, casual exits, people whose faith has not been a significant part of their life. They view their walk with Christ as low stakes, undemanding. One Marxist agnostic author wrote, I believe people should be free to practice their religion so long as it has no public consequences. What a damning condemnation of the church that we could have a religion that has no consequences, no bearing on our life. The casual exits view God as nothing other than a benign overseer, irrelevant to the details of our day-to-day -day lives. And it's called casual because the faith is so shallow, it's easy to leave. It's easy to stop going to church. It's easy to deconstruct faith. Here's my point. This is what I want you to take away. To that first group, to the casualty exits, some of you in this room may resonate with that today. I know a lot of people outside this room who do, friends of mine, family members, and I say we need to do better. We need to humble ourselves. When I think of what happened here in February, I just keep going back to that radical humility, radical humility. We need to be an authentic picture of the fifth 
gospel. We need to be holy, set apart, and different. God, forgive us. To that second group, the casual exits. First, I wanna say leaving the Christian faith does not mean leaving difficult questions. It does not mean leaving faith, actually. There's no neutral ground. Are there hard questions in Christianity? Yep, there are. Are there hard questions outside of Christianity? Yes, there are. There is nothing, nothing casual about Christianity. And here's why. One of the most fundamental epistemic commitments of our faith, that if you take it away, would short-circuit everything, and that is Jesus was resurrected from the grave. If Jesus was raised from the dead, everything changes. Everything changes. If Christ is Lord, we need to die to ourselves in order to live. If Christ was not raised from the dead, whatever, do whatever you want. It doesn't matter. As Paul says, we're pretty pitiful people if that is true. But if Christ was raised from the dead, this changes everything. Either it's everything or it's nothing. And by the way, that was the message I heard when I was your age in college that changed everything for me. For someone to say, either this is everything or it's nothing. There is no in-between. There's no neutral ground. You don't get to adorn yourself with selective elements of this faith. It's either everything or it's nothing. Christ says, though, if you lose your life for my sake, you find it. I read a biography about Christopher Nolan, the director, several years ago, and there was one line that I immediately wrote down. The biographer said, easy to enter. Christopher Nolan films are fiendishly difficult to exit. Easy to enter. Nolan films are fiendishly difficult to exit. I think that following Christ should be like a Christopher Nolan film. Easy to enter, difficult to exit. I'll never forget years ago, my in-laws watched Inception with Maria and me, and my mother-in-law fell asleep right away. When the movie ended, she woke up and she said, what happened? I was like, I'm not telling you that. You don't casually watch a movie like this. Uh, now that's a trite example, but when we think of the faith, you do not casually enter into the faith. You do not take this casually. You do not live this casually. You don't approach following Christ casually. Let me end with one last thing. The good news from that de-churching study is that researchers discovered that over half of the people who were surveyed, who left the church, are willing to actively return to church today. And many of those people said they believe they eventually will. My hope, my prayer for those who are following Christ now and those who have left and are considering coming back is that they will return to something real and authentic, something good and right and true, something hopeful, something safe, something demanding, something easy to enter and fiendishly difficult to exit. Do you want to leave too? Lord, where would we go? As the worship team comes forward, I want to make an invitation. And it is an invitation. That's what it is. It's an opportunity. And I want to make an invitation to, to two groups. One is, maybe as you're listening to me talk, and you're listening to me talk about that casualty group, the person's who have experienced some malformed and deformed expressions of Christianity. The persons who have developed some cynicism and even maybe bitterness. People who think they've been let down. I wanna invite you that as we, we play and finish with worship, would you wanna come forward and just pray for healing? That's an invitation to have a real encounter with the triune God. There's a second invitation I'd like to make. Some of you might be resonating with that casual group. 
Either Christianity is everything or it's nothing. And if you have approached your faith casually, if it's an adornment where there are selective elements that you adopt and others that you reject, and you need to come and recommit and say, Lord, I don't want, I don't want a casual relationship with you because either this is everything or it's nothing. Can I invite you to come and make that proclamation like I did when I was your age? when I had that realization, this is everything or it's nothing, and I want all of it. To, Lord, to whom, to whom would I go? So let me close in prayer, and you are invited. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the invitation of Jesus, the radical invitation, Lord. Everyone's invited. Whosoever believes, we know in John 3:16 is welcome to come. Father, I pray that this would be easy to enter, fiendishly difficult to exit because there's no neutral ground. Either it's everything or it's nothing. But Father, we believe that walking through that cross-shaped door, that cruciform door, there's life on the other side. And may that not just be our proclamation, may that be our living witness, may that be our experience, and may the world be different because of it, because we live the fifth gospel. We love you, we thank you, we pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus Christ, amen.